This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. Today I'm talking with Dr. Kate McDonald, Assistant Professor of History in the Department of History at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Dr. McDonald's book is Placing Empire, Travel, and the Social Imagination in Imperial Japan, published by the University of California Press in 2017. Thanks for having me. So in your most recent book, Placing Empire, you look at the travel industry and how tourism is used to place the empire and create kind of claim for legitimacy. Uh, I was wondering if, if you could talk about how the tourism industry grows up during the Meiji period and then how it gets deployed mm-hmm. as a way to claim empire. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question. One of the things I did in the book was skip over the beginning part, which happens mostly during the Meiji period. Um, And the reason why was because, you know, the early days of tourism were really directed towards foreign tourism. So so foreigners here being Europeans and Americans, right? Um, So the Welcome Society starts out in, I'm going to get, I'm a historian, so I'm going to get all the dates wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome Society starts out, I'm going to just go somewhere in the 1880s here, um, early 1890s. And this is just a collection of, of counts and various aristocrats who want to facilitate the, the, the tourism of other wealthy people um, from the United States and from Europe, right? So they're, they're writing personal letters, you know, show so-and-so your home, show so-and-so the art museum you've got in your backyard, that kind of stuff. Um, some of these early Japanologists, Basil Hall Chamberlain, these guys... Griffiths, they, they published tourist guidebooks, right? Um, there's an exhibition in Kyoto in, I want to say, 1874, where these are the, these are the early days, and this is really about showing, showing off Japan's modernity. But right around the Russo-Japanese War, things really start changing I, around after the Russo-Japanese War, with the Ministry of Education and the Army getting together to say, hey, let's send students to the continent. Let's send them to Manchuria. Um, what I argue in the book is that this happened because this was a very controversial war, the Russo-Japanese War, um, and they needed to drum up some support for it afterwards, for all of the lives that had been lost, for this venture onto the continent that was that was seen by many as a dangerous game. So tourism was this really powerful vehicle for, for bringing impressionable young people to the sites of, of these battles saying, hey, we put a lot of blood into this soil and it was for a very good reason and go back and tell the people what a great place it is. While you're over here, why don't you just toot on through Korea? Nobody paid much attention to it until after 1910, really, in their in their travel writings. Um, and then that's, you know, from that sort of very um, instrumentalist beginning, this whole industry developed to send students, to send influential people to Korea, to Manchuria, eventually to Taiwan, and from that, you really get the birth of the modern JTB. So it's actually the empire is really what produces domestic tourism. And so JTB was kind of a semi-governmental organization, or this was set up by the government to promote overseas tourism? So the JTB was in its origins one of these private-public partnerships. So it was a, it was a union of, of the Bureau of Railways at that point and all of the kind of major hotels, some of the department stores, I believe, and they got together to, to make travel as such easier. Um, what happens is that, is that just from the, from the early days, there's lots of involvement with um, the colonial governments, with various organizations in Korea, in Manchuria, and in Taiwan 
to facilitate travel to the continent. A lot of the big players there become big players in the JTB. And the transportation network itself develops to facilitate movement from Tokyo, from Kyoto, Osaka, to Korea and Manchuria. So the, the first express line, right, the, the kind of the, the beginning of what was going to, you know, nowadays is that Shinkansen line that runs all the way across the country. That comes up out of, a, out of the effort to move people faster to Korea and Manchuria. It runs from Tokyo to Shimonoseki. And then from there you would get on the steamer, go across the water. And at one point I remember there even being talk of, oh, let's build a tunnel yeah. under the strait. Lots of talk of building a tunnel. Didn't happen. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember uh, I was doing some research on, on the, the Tokyo Rail Network. And uh, I think it was after 19, after World War One, there's, Japan actually joins this, this international tourism convention or something like mm-hmm. so where you can actually buy a ticket in Tokyo to take you all the way over to Paris. Yes. Go down, get on that railway steamer, mm-hmm. connect to the Trans-Siberian Railway, mm-hmm. take you all the way across Europe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, they did. This is, um, I, had, I had a little paragraph about this in the dissertation, and I thought it's not going to fit in the book, so I'll just do a whole other article on it. Um, and it came out in Technology and Culture. Um, and what's interesting about these, uh, or what grabbed me about these through-passage tickets, right, this is what they're called, these, these things, it's, it's the early 1900s equivalent of being able to check, check your bag through the destination, right? Um, so these through-passage tickets, uh, they're really, the, the movement to get those done is, is, is spearheaded by the SMR, by the South Manchuria Railway Company. Because here they are. Think about it. It's 1906. They've just been formed. They're half of a railway in the middle of what is considered a vast, very you know, resource rich, rich, but at the moment vast nothing. Um, and you've you've got Russian railways, this Chinese Chinese Eastern Railway to the north, controlled by Russia. You've got the Korean railways next door, and that's still not Japanese. You know, it hasn't been colonized yet, so that's. That's also a foreign railway. You've got Chinese government railways in the other direction. And so without formulating a, lot, a number of agreements, it's a completely useless railway. It doesn't take you anywhere. So they, they push to get a lot of these organizations going to get the Japanese Bureau of Railways and Ministry of Railways involved in them. And that's how, um, by the time of by World War I, you're able to zip across on the Trans-Siberian Railway it, much faster than you can go by steamship. It's a totally awful trip. Nobody wants to do it. <laughs> so we say zip, but I'm sure yeah. it took what, a week or two to make it all. It, yeah, I think it was two weeks, and I think if you went by steamer, it was 45 days. But if you went by the steamship, you got to stop in lots of beautiful places. So that was mm-hmm. that was the preferred mode. Um, the reports on the Trans-Siberian Railway were not not complimentary. <laughs> Single track, mostly. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the SMR, the South Manchuria Railway Company's literature kind of glosses over that part of it and focuses on the speed, the, you know, the efficiency, the lower cost. <laughs> we'll just sell you on the destination. Exactly. Which, I guess, brings us back to tourism in yeah. many ways. It is selling the destination. And so how is it that these colonies are being depicted in the travel literature, the brochures put out by places like JTB? The colonies, so, so the Japanese colonies, Korea, Manchuria, and Taiwan, are all, you know, they follow a, a certain set of patterns. They are in the early part of, of the imperial period, so this was kind of from the Russo-Japanese War through the mid-1920s, early to mid-1920s. The story is all progress, progress, progress. So if you're familiar with, with the, the, the representation of Japan in the Meiji period, kind of about 1880s onward, looks very similar, but colonial version. Um, so 
you know, rah rah Japan, we're bringing civilization and enlightenment to Korea, to Manchuria, to Taiwan. Lots of, you know, like now we don't think about going to see dams, railroads, coal mines, um, sugar plantations, right, as particularly interesting <laughs> tourist sites. I mean, I went to the Grand Coulee Dam when I was a kid, but that's, I don't think, you know, it's very rare. <laughs> but that was really what you went to see, right? Um, get lots of, you would get lots of lectures from important people, station masters, various members of the colonial bureaucracy, um, chief engineers would take you around and tell you about all the cool stuff they're doing, um, all of the, the coal and whatnot they're digging up. And then in the mid-1920s, this, this changes. If you're looking at the tourist literature, it changes actually rather abruptly mm-hmm. to really emphasizing the cultural content of mm-hmm. these places. So, so saying, hey, go see Korea because it's got this beautiful Korean culture. Everybody's wearing white robes. It's very slow. It's a nice place to relax. Um, you get to do it with all the modern amenities because colonialism has brought that. You're welcome. Um, but but the point is really to to look at Koreans. And this is this is in some sense this turn to ethnic tourism is is revolutionary in the sense of tourism. The first guidebooks don't say anything about Koreans. So they are just not what you're supposed to see. In fact, you're supposed to see the process of Koreans disappearing. You're supposed to see the process of of indigenous peoples in Taiwan disappearing. And now they're and now they're the main event. What explains this? Is is it the nineteen nineteen March first movement? Yeah. yeah. There's the March first movement in Korea, this sort of spontaneous uprising against the Japanese colonial rule that the colonial government suppressed very violently. Um, there's all sorts of anti um, anti Japanese or sort of anti imperial nationalism in China that's that's affecting things in in Manchuria, but also affecting relations between the great powers. Um, there's there's you know a big uprising in Taiwan in 1915, um, but also kind of ongoing activism for self determination there. So that's to my mind the one of the main reasons why that's why there's this turn to culture, right? So it's a way of co-opting all of these movements for self-determination. The, the colonized activists are saying, hey, we're different. We don't want to be assimilated, right? We have our own nation, our own culture, our own history, and we're really rooted in this particular place. And the tourist literature then says, well, well hang on, hang on, hang on. That's not necessarily antithetical to the Japanese state. We are a multicultural people fostering right culture. we're fought, we're actually we're protecting korean right. culture and we're not we're protecting korean culture we're protecting indigenous culture particularly in taiwan this was this was very um prominent and you know what actually what's great about japan is not that we have this japanese culture but the way that all of these cultures and all of these territories work together you've got lots of soybeans and coal in manchukuo we need your soybeans and coal this is going to be a great partnership right korea is so slow we're so fast. We're going to, you know, like, um, so they, there was just lots of ways of kind of turning this into a jigs, what, what uh, Karin Weigand and Martin Lewis call it, jigsaw puzzle understanding of, of the relationship of, between culture and territory and, and the world itself, right? So they would put together the jigsaw puzzle to make a case. And it sounds like this focus on preserving and fostering Korean culture in particular would, would fit entirely into the bunkaseji or the, the cultural rule mm-hmm. that the government general adopts after 1920. Mm-hmm. doing some research on urban planning in Seoul, for example, and looking at a lot of travel brochures. 
But now that I think about it, uh, most of them were published in, in the 1930s, and it was always mm-hmm. fascinating to see the itineraries mm-hmm. that they would lay out. And it was this kind of thing, if you only have one day in Seoul, right. go to these places. Or if you have three days, well, then maybe you can go to these places. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking about how we can use travel brochures as primary sources, as historians. Do you have any thoughts on, on how these things can be used to do history? Yeah, I would say um, one of the hardest things to do with them, or I should say what they're very useful for, is illuminating the patterns of what people want you to know about and encouraging you to think about what's not there. The difficulty of that is the negative in that construction, the what's not there is infinite, right? And so figuring out what you're going to, what's important to emphasize, right? What is the, what's really important? What's the really important thing that's not there that we need to understand, right? What kind of, you know, understanding of the tourist as, as a particular kind of person are these, is this kind of travel experience engendering, right? These are the kinds of questions we can ask. And I think what's interesting about it is it's, this, is a, this is a genre that's really stuck with us. You know, it's a, it's a genre that's, I should say, it's a, around now, but it's also one that was global in the 1930s. So you could look at travel literature, tourist literature for California, and see the same patterns that I see, you know, happening in the Japanese empire, happening in the American empire. Hawaii is actually a really close, <laughs> close case to how they represent Taiwan, right? So, so it's a way of, if you really get into it and sort of, and sort of keep a critical distance to this kind of material, I think it's a way of getting of new, or I should say it, it gives you new eyes on the way that we divide up the world now, generally speaking, you, you know, even in the academy with our various area specialties and, and there's, you know, we've got this kind of history here and this kind of history here and here's this culture here and here's that culture there. And, you know, these kind of neat units, they don't exist in practice, but they are the way we've learned to look at the world. And this is the way that tourism helps us to, you know, naturalize, right, in terms of our own unthinking observations. For example, the same place or the same image being used to tell two totally different stories. So my favorite example of this is Pagoda Park in Seoul, which is, of course, the point of of origin of this March 1st, 1919 uprising. Um, And I've been there, and now there's this kind of big monument to it, right? That's got the text of the Declaration and some of the figures in in relief and the whole... There's a tiny stone pagoda in the back, but that's not the point of that park, right? The park is now fully um, constituted within a narrative of, of Korean nationalism. For the Japanese travelers who went there during the colonial period, um, before 1919, it was a place where you saw the story that that place was telling was, hey, here's this really old stone pagoda that we're preserving, and more importantly, we've made this park accessible to everybody. We've opened it to the public before it was part, just for the aristocracy, right? We've modernized this space, now it's for the public. After 1919, there's still no mention of, the, there, there's no mention of, at all of the uprising. This is not why this place is worth visiting. It stays on itineraries, and and you start to see with this turn to cultural tourism, kind of cultural consumption, the park advertised as a really great place to see Koreans. So lots of pictures of Korean men in white robes, black hats, long tobacco pipes, mm-hmm. always sitting, mm-hmm. sitting on the grass, and the stone pagodas in the background, right? Um, so this place that is so connected to the history of Korean nationalism becomes... Um, by virtue of kind of embracing this notion of Korean culture, um, or a particular particular notion of Korean culture, becomes an argument once again for the virtue of the Japanese empire. 
And then now it, that site is still with us again as a story of Korean nationalism. And a lot of these, a lot of a lot of these places have been kind of repurposed in that way. And I understand. I haven't been there myself, but I understand that a lot of the sites associated with um, Hideyoshi's invasions in the late 16th century um, are now, you know, their stories of rah rah. This is that time we we defeated the Japanese. Whereas during the colonial period, they were also very important sites to visit. And this was a story of that time before this time where we tried to colonize Korea and save them from China, but failed. But now we're back and we've finally done it. You know, so like they keep telling the same stories. I do, I've always thought Seoul is this really interesting case study of post-colonial spaces. Because mm -hmm. you have these three very different examples of how to handle colonial sites. Mm -hmm. So government general building, you know, ceremoniously destroyed right. on the 50th anniversary of independence, yeah. tear it down, let's rebuild the Kyongbok Palace yeah. as, it, as it was, you know, the day before colonialism started. <laughs> right. but, then, but then you have Seoul Station, mm -hmm. which was uh, erected just a, a year prior, 1925, I think it was. Uh, that's been preserved mm -hmm. and repurposed as Seoul, Seoul Station 20-something, hmm. a site for Korean cultural heritage. Mm -hmm. And then you have the old Keijo Municipal Building, mm -hmm. which uh, was the city hall and, and now has been uh, kind of repurposed into the municipal library, I believe. I think so, yeah. But then you know, building this new steel and glass city hall over the top of it, and, mm -hmm. you know, it even kind of has this wave shape, and, mm -hmm. and people have said it is the wave, and it even has this kind of aqua teal right. tint to it. And I mean, it's almost almost cresting right over the old colonial era building. And it's, mm -hmm. it really seems to be kind of an inundation, huh. perhaps, even of this colonial power where, where rather than just eliminating the, the power of the space or just, you know, just renaming it, you know, this is actually almost an inversion mm -hmm. of the, the spatial power there. I always found that to be incredibly fascinating. We take your building and we raise you one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then we, we yeah. see what you did here, now we can... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> when you're teaching the Meiji period, what are some of the, the themes, narratives that you use to introduce this period to your students? That was an interesting question. I have to say that these two these two questions you sent, um, very straightforward on the surface, but actually really productive to think about. <laughs> um, so what I like about teaching about the Meiji Restoration, because I teach you know, an upper division history of modern Japan, but we also talk about it in the big Japanese history 1,500 years of Japanese history in 10 weeks, of course, also. <laughs> we have one of those, too. Yes. Yeah, so everybody's got <laughs> everybody's one. Everybody's got one. <laughs> All the footnotes and asterisks <laughs> aside. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's good. I mean, it's good, though. It's kind of it's, it's an interesting um, challenge, I think, right? Because um, the students, I don't know that they come in with any particular particular ideas about the major restoration. They might they might have arrived that way 30 years ago, but but not now. And um, but they do have particular ideas about about the United States in relation U U.S. history in relation to the history of other places, particularly the so-called non-West. They've got ideas about sort of timelines of of invention and innovation and diffusion that that kind of thing, right? That they may you know they may or not be conscious of them, but they but they have them. And so the challenge in talking about the Meiji Restoration is getting them to 
to see the cultural baggage, kind of the, I would say the imperialist baggage they are bringing to, under, to, to, to listening to this project of hearing about and learning about the major restoration. And then through the story of this event, get them to understand themselves a little more and start to see how they might think about this differently, right? Um, so one of the things that we do in the survey course is at the very end we watch that silly YouTube video, History of Japan, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I always show that on the last day and say, hey, you know, we could have saved an entire year. You could have just watched this film. I know, right? It I, does a really good job. It does. I asked them, I was like, boy, I hope you learned more by sitting here for 10 weeks than you did. You would have from a nine-minute video. Um, and I started this because everybody was sending it to me. Hey, have you seen yeah, this? Right, I thought of right. you, that kind of thing, which was very kind. Um, it's hilarious. It's it's really funny, and I think for the most part, it's really good. But, but when we get to the nineteenth and twentieth century, we really rehash a lot of old stories about the Meiji Restoration and what happened. Right. So Commodore Perry comes across the ocean, opens Japan, all sorts of hijinks ensue, ending with an atomic bomb, um, and then sort of fuzziness after that. Right. Um, and, I, and so I asked them like. How does this video seem to you now that you sit sat here for ten for ten weeks and and they say, well, you know, there was a lot more going on than Commodore Perry coming over and just opening up the country and also that word opening is wrong and you know <laughs> so okay okay we're learning um, but to but you know to get them so that's like the basic level right where they sort of see factually this is incorrect we have this whole you know disaster discord within catastrophe abroad okay. Bakumatsu era that that we also. You know, that kind of set the set up the the scenario in which Commodore Perry's arrival would be more effective than Commodore Biddle's arrival in eighteen forty six, right? So that's 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 one level. But the other thing we have to get them to think about is is just the the chronology, or I should say that that temporality of imperialist history that that is just is part of our being at that point, right? So when they write papers about this in the upper division course, it is almost always in the frame of written in the frame of the Meiji Restoration being the moment in which Japan begins to catch up to the enlightened West, right? Um, and we just have to keep going back to the point over and over again. I have to say it a hundred times in class. What year was the Meiji Restoration? And I know this one, 1868. What year did we formally end slavery in the United States? 1865, right? So just when you're thinking about the the and, you know, whether one political philosophy versus another, whether or not one is more advanced than the other, I need you to just to staple that to your forehead or put the, or less violently, put the post-it note on, <laughs> on your computer, right? Um, but it's, it's actually really, it's actually really hard for students. And I think all of us to really move away from this notion of, of our era and the institutions with, in which we work as more enlightened than what came before, right? Yeah, there was not a lot of free, you know, so-called free circulation of knowledge and of people in the Tokugawa period. In fact, there was a lot of restrictions against it, you know, it was on, on purpose that was not allowed. But even in this modern era, there's not a lot of free circulation of knowledge and of people. It really depends on who you are, right? Um, what kind of knowledge it is. So when we start to kind of unpack or sort of take the major restoration out of that developmental chronology of going from darkness to light and from feudalism to modernity, um, we, have to, we have to start asking really uncomfortable questions about the moment that we live in now, right? Is, is the modern a period of enlightenment or is it a period of authoritarianism? I mean, I think the, 
the, if the jury had had come to a conclusion, it's out again, I would say, right? <laughs> um, this in this, you know, this is a debate when we're teaching graduate students about the Meiji Restoration. Are you going to talk about it as as this this move towards an enlightened liberalism? Are you going to talk about it like E. H. Norman did, which was a really troubling bit of authoritarianism and centralization um, couched in terms of of enlightenment? Um, something we're still talking about, right? You can't. It's actually almost hard to address any aspect of Japanese history without having your coming, you know, coming to terms yourself about what that, what that event was about. This reminds me of a, of a question that I've asked a, a lot of my, my guests and especially the ones who are early modernists or mm -hmm. before that. And, and it's always interesting to hear their take on it. So I'll ask you yeah. as, as a modernist, a fellow modernist, I should say, is 1868 a meaningful date? I mean, as you know, historians, we do tend to fetishize dates, and, mm -hmm. and you know, we, as much as we want our students to remember, 1868 is the Meiji Restoration, right. and keep reminding people right. this is the whole reason <laughs> it's called Meiji at 150 yeah, right. for a reason. <laughs> and don't make me say sesquicentennial. Right. I got it this time. I've, I've only had a year to practice that. Uh, but is it, you know, because as, you, as you're talking about, it's, it's not the smooth transition it's right. not a sudden transformation you know it's not like people are you know, all of a sudden waking up january 1st 1868 in top right. hats and right. things like this <laughs> it is something that takes much longer right. so are we making too much of the date right yeah i mean i mean this is the thing about dates they become historical places just like mm -hmm. you know, parts of the landscape do right so you start having centennial celebrations and sesquicentennial <laughs> celebrations and then now it's a thing um <laughs> yeah that's actually that's a really interesting question you know, when I teach it, I always talk, teach it as the long, the long major restoration, and it's not done till 1890 with the Constitution. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think I'm particularly original on, on that front. Um, but it's interesting to think about what purpose does the, does the date, you know, serve at all. Um, in many of the reforms we associate, yeah. this whole idea of catching up. Yeah. I mean, most of that's 1871, right. those reforms are implemented. Right. Like, what changes in 1868? Well... Right. That's true. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a charter oath, but actually nobody can really read it. It's not like it's published in any format. <laughs> so, um, yeah. I always joke with my students, it's not exactly Workers of the World Unite here. It's not, <laughs> it's not the most moving or spirited, you know, revolutionary right. manifesto. It's, right. It's, but, yeah, I mean, the changes that we talk about being the Meiji period reforms are yeah. after 1868. Yeah. It's, you know, it's into the 1870s, 1880s. Right. And, you know, I'm probably contributing to this conflation myself by saying, well, let's talk about the Meiji as a whole, right? Yeah. yeah I mean, I guess, it, you know, that, that, to some extent, that, that, that must be true of any revolution, right? So, you know, so for those of you out there um, who are familiar with Hamilton, which I presume is all of you, but you don't really spend a lot of time in 1776, you know, the story of the, of the revolution goes on much, much farther. And then, of course, obviously the core, the core tensions that are there in the beginning stay with, stay with everybody through the whole show and then for another 150 years after that, right? So to some extent, none of these revolutions can be contained in, in their date. Um, and then, so that's one issue. And then the second issue is that we don't really live life in years. I mean... My old advisor, Stefan Tanaka, would always say, my CV runs chronologically, my life doesn't. Which I've always thought was so smart because we're, cause we're all, you know, living in, these, living in these different rhythms. So 
for some people, like sure, if you were if you were a feudal lord, eighteen sixty eight was a big year for you, um, and it got worse every year after that. <laughs> you know, in, in some sense, I mean, most people, the bigger ones did okay. Um, but if you're if you're a porter, for example, I would imagine that when wheels are allowed on the intercity roads, is a bigger year for you because now you don't have any work, and eighteen seventy might be an important year where where although this is disputed and complicated, but we'll just say it like this for now. The rickshaw was invented in Japan. Um, and now you can pull rickshaws for a living, right? Um, and and you're doing that, and the next big year for you is streetcars, or horse-drawn railways, and then streetcars in Tokyo. So everybody's living, you know, the revolutions for, for the individual are definitely not the revolutions for the state. The challenge for us as teachers and as historians is how do we choose what we're going to talk about and how do we how do we bring the significance of these distinctions alive for our students the meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by tristan gruno at the university of british columbia in vancouver canada find out more about the meiji at 150 project including the meiji at 150 lecture series digital teaching resource and workshop series by visiting our website meiji at 150.arts.ubc.ca thank you for listening